0: This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network.
1: Today on Government Matters, Russia has refused to rule out the use of chemical weapons in Ukraine. But will Russia actually resort to doing that? The likelihood of a chemical weapons attack on Ukrainian soil. Then Russia says it will cut back on its military activity near Ukraine's capital city what a possible shift in Russia's strategy could mean for the war. And President Biden's fiscal 2023 budget proposal is out, and it contains one of the biggest national security investments in U.S. history, what this major increase means for defense spending. Government Matters starts right now.
0: From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges.
1: This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gergis. President Biden has, quote, real concerns that Russia may use chemical weapons in Ukraine. European leaders have expressed similar worries. Andy Weber is the former Assistant Secretary of Defense for Nuclear, Chemical, and Biological Defense Programs and currently Senior Fellow at the Council on Strategic Risks. Andy, welcome to the program. Thank you, Mimi. So how worried are you that Putin could use a chemical weapon in Ukraine?
2: Oh, I'm deeply concerned. It's uh, within the playbook. Uh, they've used them in peacetime um, in Salisbury, England, in an assassination attempt. And they've been covering up for Syrian use of chemical weapons uh, routinely in recent years.
1: So what capabilities does Russia currently have in the area of chemical weapons?
2: Well, they have a a whole range of capabilities, so it would depend on the intended targets. They have advanced uh, fourth-generation chemical weapons, like the Novichok agents that were used in England. They have VX, sarin, Soman, many nerve agents. They could even use um, fentanyl derivatives, um, as they did in the Moscow theater siege in 2002, where they killed over 100 people because they uh, used too high a dose. Um, So they have a whole range, and they can pick their targets. It could be against leadership, uh, military leaders, political leaders. Or it could be uh, to clear buildings, even to uh, kill people underground in shelters. It's a terrible, insidious, uh, disgusting, uh, and banned, prohibited by international convention type of weapon.
1: So Andy, chemical weapons do have drawbacks for the bad actors that would use them. Are they really more useful as a threat rather than an actual weapon?
2: No, they've been used over and over again in Syria to a good effect. They they terrorize the population. So especially against soft civilian targets, which since the Russian military is doing so poorly against actual Ukrainian military targets. Um, They seem to be focusing on uh, residential areas and and targeting civilians. So this is a weapon of mass destruction that can kill uh, thousands or even tens of thousands of people.
1: What do you think would, could tip Putin into making that decision of of chemical weapons use?
2: Well, there's a paradox here. Um, The the more uh, the Russian military um, faces defeat, the more likely they are to resort to these horrible weapons of mass destruction, up to and possibly including nuclear weapons, although I think it's much more likely that they would use chemical weapons. And apparently we have intelligence that they're planning to use chemical weapons, which we have been revealing in an attempt to preempt that use.
1: So what do you think the appropriate response should be if uh, chemical weapons are used in Ukraine? I mean, what are the options?
2: Well, I think it would lead to a a serious escalation. It would probably draw NATO further into this conflict. Uh, But there are things we can do in advance to prevent it and prepare for it. And uh, in that process, um, reduce the impact. We should be, and I believe we are, as the NATO Secretary General has announced, providing uh, protective equipment, detectors, so we would know about use, as well as medical countermeasures, antidotes, Um, to the Ukrainian military and health officials. So they are prepared to save lives in the event that this terrible uh, taboo is uh, crossed by the Russian Federation.
1: But what about a response, Andy, if they are used? I mean, what you described was before use, um, protection, deterrence. But then, I mean, what do you think? What are the options for, for a response?
2: Well, obviously, the United States is in compliance with the Chemical and Biological Weapons Conventions and has none of these weapons, so that's not a possibility. There are other things we can do to increase our military support, the level of sophistication of equipment that we're providing. And um, such a a a horrible, horrible uh, act by President Putin uh, could make us change our policy of uh, staying out of direct um, involvement in this conflict.
1: You know, the State Department has said that Russia may be spreading misinformation that the U.S. has chem bio weapons labs in Ukraine. What's the purpose of spreading that kind of information?
2: Well, that's the big lie. Uh, it's not new. They've been spreading this information for well over 10 years. Um, these falsehoods uh, have several um, intended purposes. Uh, one is to Uh, cause confusion, uh, perhaps, uh, and most concerning is they're preparing for a so-called false flag attack where they will blame the use of chemical weapons on Ukraine, which has no chemical weapons, much the way that President Assad in Syria, every time he uses them against his uh, people, um, he blames it on the opposition.
1: And finally, Andy, does the U.S. still have any chemical weapons or have they all been destroyed?
2: We are on the tail end of destroying our um, Cold War arsenal under uh, OPCW, Organization of Prohibition of Chemical Weapons Supervision. Um, we're down to the last few, but they have been taken off of um, you know, military uh, potential use for decades.
1: All right, well, Andy, I want to thank you for being on the program, and let's hope we don't have to talk about this
2: subject again. Well, let's hope not. Thank you very much.
1: Coming next, Russia says it will cut back on military activity around Ukraine's capital. But what would a strategy change mean for the course of the war? You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Russia seems to be shifting its strategy by saying it will withdraw forces from around Ukraine's capital city, Kyiv, to focus on the country's south and east. Benjamin Jensen is a senior fellow for the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, also professor of Strategic Studies at the Marine Corps University. Ben, welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you for having me so what do you th- why do you think russia has shifted its strategy what are they trying to accomplish
3: uh great question so russia effectively has shifted its strategy because they're losing um russia's attempt to rapidly change the regime in ukraine while seizing uh, territorial um, land bridges that would connect its uh territory it took in 2014 in the east to the Crimea effectively failed uh, due to the bravery um, and brilliant operational defensive campaign waged by the Ukrainian forces to include both their military and territorial defense forces, as well as citizens chipping in. These images of farmers with tractors towing away vehicles, and all of that aided and abetted by support from European and NATO member states who've been funneling weapons in. So the shift in strategy really pivots on failure to meet the initial campaign objectives.
1: So you say that this conflict's gonna enter a new phase of quote, frozen conflict. What does that mean?
3: So frozen conflict is traditionally a term used to describe uh, how Russia has prosecuted campaigns in it's near abroad since the end of the Soviet Union. And essentially what that is, is traditionally through irregular proxy forces and then using its own forces to be quote unquote peacekeepers uh, Russia will effectively annex kind of a bite and hold pieces of territory now effectively that strategy used to be a means of keeping countries like Georgia and Ukraine out of NATO since NATO um, has an issue taking in new member states that have um, ongoing territorial disputes. I think a little different though than these past frozen conflicts is the current phase is really about recalibration, um, meaning that Russia is going to figure out what it's going to do. They've had to pull back some of their top frontline units like the VDV, some of their airborne forces to Belarus, where they're currently regrouping and reconstituting. And frankly, only the Russians know what comes next. They could actually engage in good faith diplomacy and begin to look at a new solution for Ukraine, or they can actually use the time of bargaining, which many analysts think they will, to look at the next phase of their offensive. Will they go back to try to take Kiev, or as they've said in their own um, general staff, will they regroup to shift forces and attack in the East, trying to take more territory in Luhansk, Donetsk, and ideally for them, clearing Mariupol so they can connect to Crimea.
1: So how do you think the U.S. should take advantage of that shift in Russia's strategy and this new phase of the conflict?
3: continue to supply intelligence and weapons. Uh, Obviously, we've put a clear prohibition against putting uh, uniform combatants from the United States or NATO member states inside Ukraine, but that doesn't prevent us from actually providing critical weapon systems. And when I say critical weapon systems, what I mean is engage in the highest form of strategy, which is to attack your opponent's plan. It's an old idea from Sun Tzu. So if your opponent's plan is to wage a series of ground-based offensives to seize key territory while sieging cities, using artillery missiles and airstrikes to hold the Ukrainian uh, population at risk, which is a war crime, you have to attack that plan. And I think there's a couple things we can do to do that. One, we know the delivery of anti-tank guided weapons works. So keep them coming. Um, they'll need to come by the thousands. And that will require defense strategists to think about the defense industrial bases. Someone right now is running around figuring out how many Javelin missiles we can actually produce in American industry per year. And that's actually not an easy question to answer. The next level up means we have to probably shift a lot of Soviet-era surface-to-air weapon systems to Ukraine. More Russian jets have been shot down with surface-to-air missiles than they have by Ukrainian jets. And these weapon systems have an advantage that they can actually, at times, successfully engage cruise missiles. So surface-to-air missiles are actually more important than the jets that grew, drew so much attention. And third, expand upon the delivery of what are called suicide drones or loitering munitions to include higher-class weapons. So. U.S. military said we were sending what are called uh, switchblade. So this is essentially uh, the equipment. Actually, Ben, I
1: did want to ask you about those switchblade. These are a hundred of those switchblade drones going to um, Ukraine. Explain what they are first and then what impact they might have
3: sure absolutely sorry i get excited talking about war even though it's tragic so the switchblade is where we were going to go next so these are actually essentially a small warhead that actually can only see a, attack a few kilometers out it's actually a pretty small munition what we probably need to send are closer to what's called the hero 120 and interestingly enough for your you know your viewers are a bit more in tune with current politics and defense debates These are the weapon systems gaining a lot of attention in the Marine Corps as part of its new force design initiative. So this is a loitering munition that in theory can extend much farther than a switchblade and has about three times the warhead. So it actually is similar to a javelin or higher. So the idea would be to use these loitering munitions in swarms that essentially could attack, whether it's tanks or ideally artillery firing positions. It would give Ukrainians a cheap form of precision strike that allows them to keep pushing artillery further away from their cities which is why you've seen ukrainians take really bold counteroffensives around Kyiv to push russian artillery away so those loitering munitions are actually key and in, in addition to that you, i saw some footage you put up of um of ucav unmanned aerial vehicles is to get partners like turkey to continue supplying critical assets like um the tb the 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 ukrainian i mean basically the ukrainian are using turkish drones to interdict russian sites so going back to those three things continue sending anti-tank guided weapons expand the delivery of surface-to-air missiles and start to really field loitering munitions
1: and what's the timeline to get those uh, switchblade drones over to ukraine
3: Uh, that's a logistics question i mean fedex doesn't deliver to war zones so it really is up to Um, really the unsung heroes of, of NATO and that's logisticians. How rapidly can we move goods by air, by sea, by rail to intermediate staging areas and then put them on trucks where we push them to the Polish border and then there has to be a transfer of custody. Someone from Ukraine has to take it that last tactical mile into Ukraine and then distribute it from there. And by the way, this creates a whole new campaign dimension. Russia will start increasing its strikes in the West to interdict these supply lines.
1: All right, well, we're watching this as it unfolds. Ben, thank you so much for being on the program.
3: Thank you for having me.
1: Coming next, President Biden is ramping up national security spending in his fiscal 2023 budget proposal. We'll take a look inside one of the largest defense investments in history. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The national security budget for fiscal 23 has been released the white house is asking for 813.3 billion dollars that's 43 billion over last year's projections roxana tyrone is the senior reporter covering congress and national security for bloomberg government roxana welcome thank you thanks for having me so what effects did we see um, in the defense budget from russia's invasion of ukraine
4: so it's it's a quite an interesting uh, question because um, you you do see um, some aid obviously some aid for Ukraine, for for Eastern European countries to protect themselves against uh, Russian incursion and Russia's influence, but one of the major themes in the budget um, this year is um, actually that. Um, you know, China is considered the main uh, strategic threat to the United States, or as the Pentagon calls it, the pacing threat. And Russia is um, basically second tier uh, called the acute threat to the United States in part because of how um, unsuccessful the military strategy, uh, the Russian military strategy was uh, or is in Ukraine. And so the United States is, is, is focused on helping Ukraine militarily um, and with all the security aid it can, uh, but it also is not considering Russia on the same level as China.
1: Well, as you said, DOD officials have called China the pacing threat. So how did we see that reflected though in the budget?
4: Uh, you see it um you see it in 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 a, in a few areas obviously uh there's there's a clear shift to uh the pacific to the pacific region but there's also um you know we're focused on on modernizing our nuclear triad um both ground sea and air uh we are are putting money into depending on is putting money into hypersonic weapons uh, into artificial intelligence, so you see a lot more focus on communications, um, on on just uh, cyber protection. Uh, so you see a lot of that, and then you see that the, also the, the services are sort of adjusting to from, from years of counterterrorism uh, to a a new kind of um, you know um, to new kind of era that is, is is different from you know fighting wars in Iraq and Afghanistan
1: there are over um, $130 billion uh,
4: for research and development. That's the largest ever budget for that. Why so much? Because, of, because these new technologies that, that we need to invest in and also um, modernizing some of the older uh, technologies require a lot of money. Hypersonics, for example, is extremely expensive. Um and uh so, so that's why we have and, and also developing new weapon systems. Uh that's why the the, the research and technology um you know account is, is boosted pretty much every year and actually last year it was the highest ever, so this year is it's even higher. Well
1: speaking of expensive, the Pentagon is going to buy sixty one F thirty five fighter jets. That's less than initially planned. What was the reason for the reduction?
4: Well, so so the program has had some uh, some problems and some delays particularly with a with a software upgrade uh program within the f-35 and so um the pentagon is trying to give uh the, the program uh, officials time to to readjust and so they're not gonna they're not asking for they're not requesting as much money as they had initially planned to get those kinks out Um, So, um, and you've also seen um, a kind of a change on on Capitol Hill with the F-35, particularly in the last year where lawmakers have decided that um, it's better not to, um, they used to plus up the F-35 all the time, uh, but, but for the first time, uh, in fiscal 22, they didn't. They just stuck to the request because this program has so many problems and so many delays, and particularly with trying to um, the sustainment costs of the F35 are really large. And so the more planes you buy, the more the higher the sustainment costs will be uh, and the life cycle costs.
1: And, and Roxana, the elephant in the room is inflation because the inflation rate is around 8% now. So are any increases in the defense
4: budget already offset by inflation? so so this is probably going to be the biggest debate uh, particular on capitol hill that obviously you know uh takes <laughs> takes the president's recommendation into account but then you know writes writes the you know their own appropriations bills and i think it's the biggest uh, it, it will be the biggest debate uh so so uh, it does take some inflation in into account, but it's at a rate of about 2.3 to 2.6 percent, and so you you will see, especially from the GOP ranks, from the Republican ranks, um, a request to basically detail how uh, the Pentagon has taken inflation into into account, uh, whether they've gotten advice from from the outside um, on on how inflation would impact. Uh, you know, the Pentagon's operations. But, but the, you know, obviously inflation is, is way higher than, than 2.6%. Uh, percent. And so it, it, the nominal growth it, is very small. It's about 1.6% uh, in, the, in the budget request.
1: So the Army plans to lower its total troop number to below 1 million for the first time in 20 years. What's yes. driving
4: that decision? Actually, recruitment. Um, High-quality recruits are really hard to come by. And so the Army is not only competing with the other services, but it's competing with uh, the commercial uh, arena, it's competing with colleges. Um, And so the Army has decided uh, that they're not able to get the high quality recruits and they haven't been able, particularly since the pandemic has started uh, to to recruit uh, the right kind of people. And so they decided they're gonna lower their numbers instead of lowering their standards. So they, they were authorized at 485. Thousand uh, active duty soldiers uh, for this year. They uh, have indicated that they're not able to go above 476,000 for active duty. And so for the next uh, fiscal year, they're planning on even lower, which is 473,000, which is going to bring Um, the number uh, down below 1 million. And obviously, as your viewers probably know, the Army is the largest U.S. military service, and so they've always been uh, a significant significant force, and it's the first time in at least 20 years that they've gone down.
1: All right, well, Roxana, I appreciate you being on the program. Thank you very much.
4: Thank you for having me.
1: If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And listen to our Government Matters podcast, available on all major listening platforms. You can also find every podcast episode on our website, govmatters.tv podcast. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24 seven news and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on seven news to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching, I'm Mimi Gerges.
0: Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor hughes network systems
1: i'm here with tony bardo assistant vice president for government solutions at hughes tony welcome can you start by just telling me what hughes does for the federal government
5: what we do is provide connections we connect the dots meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies their locations their people